Welcome to a special edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. If anybody has written nonfiction, whether it's history or whatever it is, they wrote it for a reason. And therefore, they have an emotional investment in the subject. And therefore, a narrator can have emotional investment as well. The character in nonfiction is the voice of the writer. So there's not, to me, a different approach in fiction or nonfiction. There's a passionate, invested heart behind the material, no matter what. You just heard actors Suzanne Torin and Tavia Gilbert. Both are award-winning audiobook narrators, moving effortlessly from fiction to nonfiction. You may have heard Suzanne narrate Emma Donahue's novel Room, or The Only Woman in the Room by Marie Benedict, or a personal favorite. In fact, one of the books that brought me to audiobooks, Suzanne's narration of Catterskill Falls by Allegra Goodman. Tavia is equally fluid, narrating books like The Shift by Teresa Brown, or Marie Hummel's Still Life, or the recent The Quintland Sisters by Shelley Wood. And both Tavia and Suzanne have narrated a wide range of history written by and about women, from autobiographies to surveys to books that focus on a pivotal moment in women's history, like finally getting the right to vote. We're closing out Women's History Month by speaking with Tavia Gilbert and Suzanne Torin about some of the history they've narrated, the emotional journeys they've taken with these books, and the skills needed to bring them to life. We first began our conversation with a little of their audiobook background. Since Suzanne's narration had brought me to audiobooks, I was curious how they first discovered them, as readers or as listeners. Here's Tavia Gilbert. I have a really meaningful story about how I came to audiobooks. I was an acting student in Seattle, Washington at Cornish College of the Arts, and I was driving home to Idaho for a spring break, I think which was about a seven-hour drive. And I thought, I'm, I've heard of audiobooks. I was raised on Garrison Keillor and raised with audio in my family, but I'd never listened to an audiobook before. So I thought, I'm going to go get a book on cassette and put it in my Dodge Neon cassette player as I drive to Idaho. I checked out a Joanna Trollope book narrated by Davina Porter as my Dodge. first audiobook. Couldn't have Wait, chosen better. Could we have a moment, a yes. moment of, of, of reverence, reverence for yes. Davina Porter, Absolutely. who is so wonderful. She, I keep a picture of Davina in my recording studio. Oh. Actually, <laughs> she's so wonderful. She is so wonderful. So I turned on the cassette tape, and her voice came out of the speakers, and I started weeping because I thought I want to do that. I studied voice as part of my acting program, and absolutely was passionate about voice study. And that was my first audiobook experience. So I thought, as that young actor, this is something I want to do. Uh, and it was a number of years before I got the chance to do it. And it was also a number of years before I finally met her coming up the stairs at a party. And I'd had at least one martini. And again, I started weeping and said, you are the reason I do audiobooks and thank you and I love you. And she just patted my hand and she said, take your time, dear. <laughs> <laughs> but what better entry to audiobooks oh, than yeah. a master like Davina oh, Porter? That's, that's a wonderful story. And Suzanne, how did you first come to audiobooks? Via the theater. I was 100 years ago, I was doing a 
play here in New York, a showcase. Uh, so that meant we weren't getting paid, but it was equity approved. It was a Shakespeare play, actually. It was Winter's Tale. There was an actor in that play who is no longer with us who said that he read books for the blind. And I thought, that sounds like something I might like to do. So I auditioned, and I was hired. And for many years before audiobooks became a thing that sighted people do and was only a thing that for the blind, for Library of Congress talking books, I did talking books until eventually in the mid-'80s sighted people got the hang of it. <laughs> and then um, I started to work my way into producers who produced books for the current producers. For the culture at large. Yes, yes. Well, you both are actors on stage or on screen, actors where you use your voice as well as your body. Can you just share a little bit about what happens when it's just the voice? And what are the challenges, but what are the opportunities, which I would imagine exist in that as well? Go ahead, Suzanne. It's been my experience that even though all you hear at the end is the voice, I do a lot of moving around. So we wear clothes that don't make noise, and we have chairs that don't squeak, hopefully. <laughs> but I do lots of moving around, hand gestures. Lately, the past few years, actually, I've been standing very often as I narrate. And that even allows one to get into a physical posture. I do a lot of shifting of my mouth and changing, you know, stuff around to make different characters be who they are. And, yeah, there are certain characters that I couldn't voice if I didn't physically embody them somewhere in myself. Tavia. You asked what the opportunities yeah, are. What, what the challenges, but also yeah. opportunities, because I think in some ways it must be a lot of freedom when you get to create something literally through through airwaves. Mm, it is. It is a really challenging art form. It's a very physical art form, which is counterintuitive. A lot of people wouldn't necessarily think that it is as physical as it is, but we're using our entire bodies, even if our sound is only coming through our mouths. As Suzanne said, we're physicalizing throughout our entire toolbox of our bodies. The thing that I think is uh, one of the most beautiful opportunities of audiobooks is what I tell students, whether they're writing students, learning about audio or audiobook aspirants, breath is the body language of an audiobook. So everything, whether it is voiced or not, whether it's the space between the line or between the word, whether it's the way we hold the breath or use the breath, that's the body language of acting behind the mic. And I think that that's a beautiful opportunity. It makes me understand human nature and human impulse more deeply because I'm thinking all the time of how do we hold our breath as human beings in relationship with each other, in conversation with each other. That's an incredible opportunity. You've both done really such a range of work, but you've also done a lot of history written by and about women. And do you approach history differently than you would fiction, for example, Tavia? Every book is written because somebody is passionate enough to keep their time in at the desk and write the book. So there's no such thing to me as dry material. Somebody labored over that text for months or years. And the character in nonfiction is the voice of the writer. So there's not, to me, a different approach in fiction or nonfiction. There's a passionate, invested heart behind the material, no matter what. 
And what about when you're doing memoir or mm-hmm. autobiography? Do you feel a special I don't, responsibility, Suzanne? Well, as soon as you use the first person pronoun and you're with I this and I that, then it's sort of it's like being a character in a play. Then you take on those characteristics. So I'm just thinking about the the idea of responsibility. I think whenever you say I, there's a bit more responsibility than when you're describing something in the third person. Uh, I never thought about it that way. I have a master's degree in writing in nonfiction and studied memoir and personal essay. So I have a particular passion and commitment to that form. And I love narrating memoir. It's so intimate. It requires so much vulnerability. And the craft is about truth and memory, which are so complicated and slippery almost. So I have a great respect for writers as a whole, and an even deeper respect for writers who make art out of their lives. Mm. I have been really blessed to narrate a lot of memoir and to be highlighted for skill in memoir. And I think one of my skills as a narrator is emotional intimacy, which memoir requires. So I love, love, love that form. You both narrated Eleanor Roosevelt, Mm. Tavia, her autobiography, and Suzanne, her first book, It's Up to the Women. Eleanor Roosevelt, I mean, (laughs) such an iconic figure. (laughs) That was a responsibility. That was, yes. Yeah, and that's exactly what I wanted to ask you. So how do you approach Eleanor Roosevelt? Well, I found it delightful because my politics coincide very nicely with hers. So when she got passionate about things she believed in and and ways that public policy could be made or ways that humanitarian efforts could be started, I got really impassioned. In fact, the engineer I was working with at the time said, it's like you're channeling her. (laughs) That was a great compliment because I felt it. Let's hear Suzanne channeling Eleanor Roosevelt, reading It's Up to the Women. Most of the women in the country are women who are living on moderate-sized incomes, mostly earned, with few investments to take into consideration beyond perhaps the ownership of a small house or apartment. These women, many of them, have worked, and most of them are willing to work again if they can get work. On the whole, they are less afraid, though with each wage cut they have to make changes in their way of living, and changes which do vitally affect their entire lives. It may not mean actually less food, but it does mean cheaper food. I mean, emotionally, I was channeling her. I didn't try to imitate her voice. Yeah, neither of you did No, I, I, I think that's a, a mistake. I mean, it's one thing if you're Gary Oldman and you're doing Churchill in that brilliant movie. He was fantastic. But otherwise, I think it's a distraction when you just have an audio thing happening. People who know the original voice say... That either that's a great imitation or that's a lousy imitation, but however they assess it, they're thinking about the imitation. They're not thinking about the content of the words, so it's a distraction. Right. Our job is not to imitate a person who was a real person in history. And so I'm in my 40s. I'm much younger than Roosevelt was when she was writing. I don't come from the same social class or the same geographic origin. So there was no way that I was going to try to imitate her. But like Suzanne, I admire deeply her passion, her politics, 
her commitment to service. And so it was a huge humbling honor to have the opportunity to live in her world mm -hmm. and in her words for a week, I think it took me to record her book. I think our job is to be a medium for the spirit of the language. And so I can get behind her, her thinking and her work. I'm never going to be of her world, but I can certainly be a medium for her world to reach new listeners and new audiences. You know, audiobook narration is a joy and it's meaningful. We're telling stories, we're offering work to the world that the world needs. Stories save lives and work like Roosevelt's that is political and socially invested is a huge opportunity for me as an artist to create a legacy of my own, that this is part of my body of work. And that means the world to me. So I was very, very honored to get that opportunity. I was honored too. With her writing, it's, I'm going to say old fashioned, and that's not quite right, but it is certainly not of this moment. Mm -hmm. and, and it could seem stilted in other hands, but both of you made it sound very natural. And I'm wondering how you would approach writing that, as I said, isn't quite of this time, sentences that are much more complex than the sentences we're used to reading now. Mm -hmm. Suzanne. Well, for me, it's actually, it's a pleasure because, because the sentences are complex, the thoughts are complex, which for me is enormously refreshing. <laughs> you know, the very opposite being 140 character Twitter. So it's a, a wonderful challenge to, the word isn't modulate, to, to sort of sing the length of a lengthy sentence or a, a thought that evolves into a paragraph. It's like riding the waves of the paragraph and making the, the essence come forward and be human rather than didactic also. Tavia. Great writing like hers is like surfing. That's the, the way I describe it to people a lot, that there's very little for me to do as a narrator when the writing and the thinking are expert and deep. It's, I really wrestle with writing that is inexpert. Then I'm, I really actually feel like I've been wrestling when I come out of the booth. So um, I love hearing Suzanne describe riding the waves because that's exactly it. There's not anything that you have to apply or push. Yeah. You hang back and it takes you forward. Here's a little of Tavia Gilbert narrating Eleanor Roosevelt's autobiography. It always amuses me when any one group of people take it for granted that because they have been privileged for a generation or two, they are set apart in any way from the man or woman who is working in order to keep the wolf from the door. It is only luck and a little temporary veneer, and before long the wheels may turn and one and all must fall back on whatever basic quality they have. You know, that's a whopping, what, 18 hours? Yeah. And we are taken literally from her infancy mm -hmm. to the present day, her present day, right. obviously not ours. What's the biggest challenge when you're tackling a book that really is that long and has such depth to it, too? I think stamina is always a challenge for an audiobook narrator. But with that, there's no crescendo of a finally getting to the fictionalized, heated moment. In a book of nonfiction, 
I think the challenge is to not flag in one's energy so that each moment stays fresh and stays new and is just as riveting as the 10 hours that came before when there's you're not building to anything necessarily. That can be challenging, but that's really the narrator himself or herself that's challenged. It's not got a lot to do with the work itself. It's the artist's energy and performance pace that needs to be maintained. Which brings us right back to what you said before, uh, Tavia, about the breath, and that, in fact, this work is very physical, and stamina builds, and after a while, one can spend more hours narrating than one initially thought, and it has to do with comfort, either sitting or standing, and breath, and being able to just ride your breath and trust your breath. Well, you did something so similar very recently with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, mm. The Life. That mm-hmm. was 24 plus hours. Mm-hmm. How did you tackle that book? That was interesting because it was a lot about her actual life. I mean, the biographical information. Here's Suzanne Torin narrating Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Life. It's written by Jane Sharon DeHart. Growing up in a Yiddish speaking household in Manhattan's Lower East Side, the primal homeland for immigrant Jews, she developed a passion for reading. Indeed, she so often walked down the bustling, crowded streets with her head buried in a book that on one occasion she tripped and broke her nose. Her father, recognizing that she was the most intelligent of his three daughters, had enlisted her help with his bills, which she wrote out in a mixture of English and Yiddish. For example, one cabinet gefixed repaired. There was a lot of it that was about the cases that she argued. So a lot of it was legal stuff. And we were looking up a lot of things on our website. There's a website that where you can actually hear people talking about Supreme Court cases. So that was good. But there again, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a woman that I could identify with and whose politics and whose passions... I can resonate with, so it was not very difficult to be engaged and impassioned when she was, or about the same issues she was. How much time, typically, do you have with a book before you walk into the studio? Is there a typical time, or does it just change from book to book, publisher to publisher? How, how does it work, Suzanne? The latter, I the would latter. say. <laughs> it, it does change. And uh, one of the reasons it changes, and one of the reasons one gets a short time sometimes is that the publishers don't get the final pass, or anyway, the recordable pass of the book until sort of late in the game. And then everybody's pressured to have the book recorded and mastered and finished. And another deadline that's in the past few years, I, I guess, has, has been the case, is that very often when there's a new release, they want the audiobook and the print book to come out on the same date or in very close proximity. And that is quite a task for you. What do you do when you get the book, Tavia? There's not time to prepare deeply, usually. If we've got thorough time to fully read the script, then we're really ready to go. And I think the more expert the narrator, uh, the less we are laboring over those choices that will then apply within the recording experience itself. So I know that some narrators prepare voices in advance. I don't. I trust that the voice that comes up 
through me and out into the mic will be the right voice. Occasionally I'll tinker with it, but for the most part I trust my choices. So when I get the book, I read thoroughly and I prep the manuscript lightly for several things. I mark the words that I need to look up pronunciation. I mark characters that enter each scene and like a theater script, what those characters say about themselves and about others. I'm marking aspects of their characterization, such as socioeconomic status, any dialect notes, any physical description, which will go into how that character sounds, mm -hmm. even though we don't see them. They, you know, a six foot ruddy complexioned red haired cop sounds different than a five foot three um, small boned new police officer. So I need to know those things. And then the most directly applicable note I make to myself in the performance is an attribution that follows a line of dialogue. He muttered, she screamed, so that I infuse those lines of dialogue with the appropriate inflection. And then I'm ready to go. So it's it's a lot on the fly. And we have to make sense of language very quickly, recognize and pick up and mine text cues, which means that all of this experience behind the mic is deepening our craft as actors in any genre. Ditto. Absolutely. <laughs> but if <laughs> you create if you create voices on the fly, how then do you remember through an entire big book? You know, you're reading for 18 hours. How do you remember and keep track of those different voices? Suzanne. One way these days with technology is that those voices can be bookmarked or uh, saved somewhere. And you can hear them again when the character next speaks. If the character doesn't speak for 200 pages and you've forgotten, you can hear what you did. Another way that I've done in addition and before the technology is what it is, is that I just mark it down on a piece of paper. I just make notes to myself. Tavia. You kind of remember through your DNA, too. Also, yeah. The better the writing, the more that character is fully fleshed out, a fully realized character that comes off the page. So I always refer to my voice clips so that I'm keeping consistent, but I also remember who that person is and their sound comes from the specificity of what's written and then the specificity of how I enact that character. Tavia, you read The Women's Hour. It tells the story of the struggle in Tennessee to pass voting for women. It was the last state necessary for the constitutional amendment that gave women the right to vote. It was very dramatic, mm -hmm. even though we know the ending. <laughs> right. So at the same time, as the narrator, you're telling us the story as it's unfolding. Can you just talk a little bit about how you deal with pacing, for example, with something like that. I loved that book and was thrilled to be given the chance to narrate it. And again, I keep coming back to the fact that if writing is brilliant, my job is so easy. Um, so the book was brilliantly written, and it was written and structured like a thriller. And that was not a structure or a, a tone that I think was imposed on the story but something that came naturally out of the story. It came down to one state. It came down to one vote. We do know the end of the story, but the machinations to get to the point of successfully, finally passing this legislation were riveting. And the factions, women fighting the right to vote, that was an mm -hmm. education for me. 
Here's Tavia narrating The Woman's Hour, written by Elaine Weiss. By the time the train pulled into Nashville in the dusky twilight, it was hard to make out the copper and bronze statue of the messenger god Mercury perched atop the Union Station Tower, greeting travelers to the bustling capital city. Minerva, the warrior goddess, might have been a more fitting figure for the president of the National American Woman's Suffrage Association, Susan B. Anthony's anointed heir, the supreme commander of its great suffrage army, the woman they called the chief. Carrie Cat had been summoned to lead her troops into the fray one last time. It was a very emotional book to record. There's no spoiler alert. We know that the suffragists were finally successful, but the book concludes with a scene of women dressed in white going to the cemetery and putting I voted stickers on the tombstone of Susan B. Anthony. And it was hard to record because I was weeping while I was recording this conclusion. So again, it was a rare book that I felt was not just my career, but my part of my legacy as an artist. This is a story that I want to be told in my voice. I want to contribute to young women and young men listening to this and understanding how hard fought, how hard won these rights were. You, you really mm -hmm. did such a great job of, of predicting my question because I was <laughs> going to say, you know, when you read about these women who dealt with so much and made our lives possible, do you find yourself moved and do you need time out sometimes? Absolutely. I would, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. For sure. For you do sure. have to stop and cry and yeah. feel. We really feel the emotions go through us. So I, I often have to stop and cry and, and then calm myself and prepare to go back in because I don't want to take up so much emotional space that the listener doesn't have room for their own emotional reaction. But I yeah. want to genuinely feel but absolutely. And it reminds me, it's not about women, but several years ago, I had the honor of reading Team of Rivals. Darren Kearns Goodwin, who's a brilliant writer, brilliant book. And of course, we all knew the ending. And when we got to the ending, both the engineer and I were in tears. And again, the way it was presented is, you know, there were many more murders planned for that night, and I, which I hadn't known until I read that book. And again, it was a very suspenseful buildup to the moment that we all knew. And uh, it's powerful stuff. Well, when you narrated Remember the Ladies, again, a history, and if Tavia's The Women's Hour focused on one battle in the right to vote, Remember mm -hmm. the Ladies just takes the trajectory of women in the United States. How do you approach a history that has such a long arc? If I remember right, each chapter was about a different era. So it's like starting over, like each chapter is sort of a new, the beginning of a new play, and to see if you can get inside the head of the, the mood of that era or of that particular person, and just start from there. Here's Suzanne Torin narrating Remember the Ladies by Angela Dotson. When the Mayflower landed in Massachusetts, after going off course as it headed for Virginia in 1620, Eighteen married women, three of them pregnant, and eleven girls were among its approximately one hundred passengers. One woman drowned, perhaps having flung herself overboard while the ship was still in dock. Only four of the adult women survived the first winter. Sometimes you need a moment to go from the end of one chapter to a 
different time and place and person just to shift gears. Uh, that's, that's the challenge, and sometimes it just requires a moment of time and readjustment. And what about pacing for a book like that? Do you think about pacing differently when you're looking at a history versus a memoir, say, or fiction? Maybe a little bit because history is not in the first person. So there are facts you want to get out there, and there are sort of overarching thoughts that you are phrases that you want to put out there, as opposed to speaking in the first person. Sometimes when one speaks, one hurries up with certain thoughts and gets, gets to them and then sort of lingers on others. And so the pacing is perhaps a little more unpredictable, let's say. But you don't want to be too predictable in, in the... That's <laughs> the worst. In, in the nonfiction <laughs> ones either, right, because then you put people to sleep, right? Tavia, you mentioned breathing and breath and, and that kind of consciousness. And I wonder what else you learned as narrators that you bring to your work as actors who are acting on a stage or in a screen with your bodies as well as your voices. Suzanne. One thing that I appreciate is the ability to shift gears, to go from one character to another quickly and or from within any given character to approach it one way. And if the direction is try it a little differently, you can go there fast. It doesn't take days. And the ability to shift gears might at first seem superficial, but then when you deepen that, it's a way to get into the character. There are different ways of thinking about how to approach a character from the inside out or from the outside in. I think they both work. Some work better for some people than for others. But for me, from the outside in, taking a tone or taking an attitude and then deepening it works. And the taking a tone or taking an attitude is what we do vocally all the time. And Tavia? There are two things. That I think audiobooks is incredible training for on-camera work and for theater. Theater in that if I pick up a script, I can mine the details so quickly. It has made me an, a, an incredibly efficient actor making sense of language. So I was thrilled to think my skill as an actor on stage has been honed. In audiobooks, we have to make sure that we are emotionally appropriate and resonant and truthful and have the sense that if our performance is interrupted, if we stumble or if a plane goes overhead and interrupts our performance, we can stop, back up, maintain the emotional through line and the truth and pick up right where we left off and go again, which is perfect for on-camera work. So I feel like the 12 years of full-time audiobook narration that I have been engaged in has made me such a skilled actor in every medium because audiobooks is so labor-intensive and so craft-rich and craft-intensive that it, it gives me this whole toolbox of really refined skills that can go in any other genre. Well, I think that is a good place to leave it. Thank you, Thank Tavia, you. so much. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank it you. It really was my pleasure speaking to both of you. Thank so you. Good. A Thank pleasure you. to be here and a pleasure <laughs> to be with you. you. Those were actors Suzanne Torin and Tavia Gilbert talking about just some of the histories they've narrated by and about women. Go to audiophilemagazine.com 
where you can read reviews of many of the books Tavia and Suzanne have narrated, from history to fiction to everything in between. This has been an extended edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. You can subscribe to Behind the Mic wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening. <laughs>